Negotiating is one of the most important tasks of a leader, and we negotiate all of the time, all of us, but many of us aren't doing it particularly well. We make lots of mistakes. We don't get to the results that we should. And therefore, today we will talk about how to negotiate. Welcome to the Whole Grain Leadership Podcast, where we look at the art and science of leadership from a holistic perspective. If you want more than just a quick fix, you've come to the right place. Let's get started. Here's your host, Matthias Catan. Welcome to another episode of the Whole Grain Leadership Podcast. As I said, today we will talk about negotiation. And I'm sitting here with Anja Henningsmeyer. Anja has done many different things in her life. She was a journalist, she managed a film festival, and she was the owner of a image agency, a photo agency in Hong Kong. And since 2008, she is the head of the Hessian Film and Media Academy, which is a network of uh, universities in the state of Hessen here in, in Germany. And, uh, well, there she is the managing director. But that is not actually the reason why she is here today with me. In addition to her day job, she is also a trainer and coach who works on different issues around communication, presentation, and negotiation. She has written a book that came out this year, unfortunately so far only in German, but maybe we'll can change that. We can change that in the future. And the book is called Denn Sie Wissen, Was Sie Tun. And the subtitle is Wie Frauen Erfolgreich Verhandeln. And that translates roughly into English uh, because they know what they are doing, how women negotiate successfully. It was published in 2019 this year with Campus Publishing House, uh, I think here in Frankfurt. Welcome to the show, Anja. Welcome, Matthias. Thank you. Great to have you here. Now, why is negotiation, why are negotiation skills so important in life? Oh, the answer is very obvious. You do it all your life, right? You start as a child for, let's say, sweets and attention. And as an adult, you negotiate for so many issues, for money, budgets, tasks, your needs. You negotiate more often than you are aware. So that's why a lot of universities know that it's a key competency, no longer a soft skill. It's a key competency, right? And as a child, you have um, sometimes limited means. You negotiate more. Um, yeah, you often use forms of pressure, crying, shouting, tantrums to get your demands through. But in business, you should uh, at least then do it sometimes more refined to fulfill some social standards, I would say, and also to preserve the relationship uh, to your negotiation partner. If we do it so often, why do I have this feeling that a lot of us don't really like to do it? And we're not, we have this feeling that we're not doing it as well as we could. Because it lies in the nature of what negotiation is. A negotiation is a conflict, and we don't like conflicts in our life. Huh? We like to live more in a harmonious way. You can't do anything about it. It's a conflict, and we um, have to learn to see the playful aspect of negotiation, which is, in fact, 
the game of giving and taking, of exchange. You mentioned that we negotiate all the time. Sometimes it's obvious. So if people think, for example, uh, of a salary negotiation at work, or if you want to buy something like a house or a car, there everybody would agree, you know, we're in a negotiation situation. Can you give us some examples of other daily life negotiation situations where the listeners may not even be aware that it is also a negotiation? For example, if you discuss with your partner which holiday destination you want to go this year, and she says, oh, let's go to the beach again, it's so relaxing, and you say, not again the beach, really, I want to go hiking in the mountain, that you, you may, may be in the middle of a negotiation. Or a child in the supermarket, huh? trying to get you buying this kind of sweets for her or for him, and... Um, Yeah, using means of pressure like tantrums, I have mentioned it before. These are all negotiations. If you don't really agree right away with what the other want, you negotiate. Speaking of children, mm -hmm. my impression is that children are often pretty good at negotiation They are genius, skills. negotiation geniuses. Why do we seem to lose that skill somewhere when we grow up? It has to do with social standards in society. And there we come also to gender differences in negotiation. We learn to use language in a very conscious way. And for example, a lot of women learn that they should be more modest and not so pushy in what they want. And so they, they do not really learn this to play this game of giving and taking what you enjoyed as a child because you you just understood better that you that some you have to exchange things and in addition in german culture it's not so implemented like in asian cultures uh, i have lived a long time in china and it was daily daily business in china to negotiate about everything everything um, that has changed a little bit, but um, when I lived there, it was like that. And in Germany, negotiation has a little bit, not this playful aspect, but a negative connotation. And that's a pity. So why did you decide to write this book that I mentioned? And by the way, I will put the title in the show notes so that uh, if you want to buy the book, you will find the link in the show notes. Why did you decide to write this book and why did you decide to write it specifically for a female audience. During my trainings, I experienced that there is a real need for women to get a better understanding of how they can negotiate better pace. Women negotiating their salaries is often a special issue. First, because there are some misunderstandings about placing high demands in working relationships. And second, yeah, women often feel being ridden, ridden roughshod over uh, due to different communication styles between the genders. You mentioned education plays a role there, cultural things as well. Are there other reasons why you think that men and women negotiate this so differently? Yeah, we, let's put it right. We can talk about tendencies here. Um, not to forget that there are other genders in the world, right? But the tendencies of different negotiation styles between men and women are unfortunately systemic. 
And that leads to systemic gender imbalances regarding, for example, pay. The gender pay gap is reality. And so are leadership gap, as I would call it. And a lot of companies have more male than female. I think, again, it has to do with the communication styles that are shaped by learned language. What we learn in our childhood extends later in our business life. And women often use language in a way that foster relationships. Men and people in leadership positions, men as women as well, often use language in a way that expresses and demands status. So hidden behind this different use of language are social needs. And these needs play a crucial role in every, in every negotiation. To ne negotiate successful, you need to get aware of these underlying needs. And um, yeah, I admit it's a very, very, um, the picture I create here, uh, created here is painted with a very broad brush. But in my book and in my trainings, I express these differences in communication styles much more detailed, so we can really work with it. Uh, the second issue that women often have are gender stereotypes in our society. There are still some biases, and this is a result from research, that a tough female negotiator risks to get bad judgment for her social competency when she is as tough as a male negotiator. And this is a result of a study. So this is because... There is still this unspoken gender stereotype that women should be more modest in their demands and care more for others. And what you can do if you negotiate your pay as a woman, don't go against the stereotype, but uh, use a leverage to go around it. For example, by saying, I have to feed my children or I have to care for my family and that's why I need a pay rise. That would serve this gender bias and make you seem more social competent because you don't ask for yourself, but for the others. It would be a, a way to go around this bias. That's interesting because that seems to be a good way to get out of this trap situation whereby women, and you describe this in your book, obviously they are either they are being judged as being too pushy or too aggressive and then they're being seen in a negative way. Or if they are too modest, then obviously they, are, they may be liked, but they don't get what they deserve. So it's kind of a bit of a catch-22 mm -hmm. position. Now, we framed this these structural or cultural differences in a bit of a negative way as putting women at a natural disadvantage. Now, you describe in your book that uh, women traditionally place more emphasis on relationship building, for example. But couldn't that also be an advantage in a negotiation situation because women are better at reading maybe interpersonal issues, emotions, and so on and so forth? Could you also turn it around and see that they have advantages in certain ways? Yes, of course. Every person who understands that you always negotiate between two points. One point is uh, the stakes, what is on st uh, at stake, uh, what are the issues here. And, of course, you always um, have a relationship to your negotiation partner. And people who understand this, that you always have also the relationship at stake, are 
a priori the better negotiators because they know they have to balance it out. And if you think, for example, if you have family, you have family, you have also children, uh, I think you will negotiate very often much more in an accommodating style with your children because you like to preserve the relationship with them. And um, more often you say would say, it's not so important to, to push this demand through uh, because it's more important to, to have a good relationship with my child. In a one-time transaction task, maybe you can push much harder because the relationship is not so high. Yes, but it's true also, I mean, at least intuitively, is that I would say the majority of important negotiations tend to be those with people that we have kind of repeat business with. So yeah, maybe there may be a high stake uh, one-time transaction. For example, if you're buying a house or something, you know, mm -hmm. maybe you're not likely to buying a house mm -hmm. a second time from the same person. But the majority of important negotiations are either with your spouse or you know your family or with your boss at work, where it's also, of course, important that you maintain a good relationship. Yeah. I agree. Let's get a little bit to the uh, the process of negotiation itself. And uh, what I found interesting is that uh, despite all the differences that we've talked about between men and women, there are also a lot of similarities and a lot of common difficulties. So when I read the book, I found it useful also for myself. So that was uh, that was good. And uh, you have one chapter in the book where you talk about the three most common mistakes. And, and I found it interesting that you use an example from a serious house of cards, which many of the listeners may have seen. If not, you should, because it's a, a very well-made series. Could you maybe walk us through either the scene, if you like, but at least the kind of the three mistakes that you highlight there? Hmm, the first mistake... Um, has to do with preparation. Maybe I give an example that's better. Uh, how, how should you prepare for uh, negotiation? You never just go into a negotiation with just one claim because then you don't have a margin. For example, you go into a salary or a, or a price negotiation, you always should set a minimum and a maximum for you. I'm talking about preparation here, right? So let's say you have researched that uh, the standard pay in your business is 48,000 per year to uh, 51,000. 48,000 would be your minimum pay you negotiate for and 51,000 would be the maximum. And you start with the maximum and you will not go under the minimum. Uh, the minimum um, we will call the walkaway point because then you really walk out of the negotiation. Otherwise, you would get get frustrated, and that's uh, that can this negotiation with your frustrated uh, being inside of you would never stop. So um, that's very important that you understand the importance of determine and. Uh, walkaway point, but that's just the start of a preparation. And then you assemble much more claims you can take with you. Claims like remunerations, like what's a, a job ticket, home office, possibility of working from home, flexible working hours, whatever. A lot of remunerations that claims that really have a value for yourself and you can take for this game of giving and taking this exchange game. That's very important for the preparation. So never walk into um, salary negotiation by just trying 
to negotiate about that number. You, you are not flexible enough for this giving and taking game. That's one thing. And the second thing is emotions. You should not be led by emotions. And the third one is you should always have your concentration on the, um, on the process and not negotiating with yourself in the negotiation. That means preparation is key. You need to be very, very well prepared. Otherwise, you cannot focus completely on the process, on the, on the other one. Because to negotiate successfully, you should negotiate in the world of the other and not in your world. Now, the preparation, I understand. I mean, that's something you can do before. Mm -hmm. What happens if you either don't have the information? I mean, this is something that often happens in salary negotiations, especially when you maybe starting out in a business, you don't really have an understanding or you don't really know the, uh, the range that would make sense. What can you do? Preparation means you need to do a lot of research. So you go to the internet, you check, um, you can find a lot of statistics on the internet what is the general pay what are these general pay standards in my uh, in my profession in my branch um, you can also ask colleagues you can ask people who are more experienced already working in that branch so and of course you you need also to have a good calculation of what is your real minimum what do you need for your life so uh, there are a lot of different factors that um that have an influence on the pay. And you need to do this research well. Clear point. Well taken. Now, the next thing you mentioned is emotions. And you said, well, you should leave the emotions out of it. Well, this may be rationally understandable. That's easier said than done, right? Because the nature of emotions is that we cannot control them. How can you cope with emotions, especially when you feel maybe stressed or maybe you're anxious about the situation? Uh, emotions play a very dangerous role in negotiations because they, uh, if they get in, in the way, it can blow up your whole strategy. So even positive emotions are dangerous. For example, if we feel flattered, we may say too fast yes to something we regret later, right? An example, huh? Matthias, I know you are so experienced in strategy plan, in strategic planning. Huh? I need your expertise. Huh? Can you help me with the class tomorrow? Of course. I ask you because, yeah, I ask you because you have always been such a reliable team player. And that was it with your free evening with family, family and friends, right? So it's really important dealing with emotions, positive or negative, during negotiations. And suppressing emotions, uh, I would say, is not an option because it takes a lot of energy suppressing emotions. And the energy, as I said before, we need to focus on what's going on in the process of negotiation. So I always recommend to uh, label the, the emotion you feel is coming up, up, like I'm getting angry or I'm, I'm stressed silently for yourself. Put a label on it and then you can decide how to deal with it. Will I push this emotion aside and say, okay, I'm getting angry, but still I can 
uh, have a rational thinking, I have rational ideas, I can still listen very attentively, or will I need to have a break and um, go out? And that's important not to suppress the emotions, try to label them silently to yourself, or sometimes you can also decide to, to speak the emotion out, huh? to say, um, you know, I'm quite disappointed about the present uh, uh, conditions you, you present me here, uh, what can we do about it? And you can also speak it out if you feel that your negotiation partner is getting emotional as well. Is that also a good strategy if you feel that the other side is trying to manipulate you in a way emotionally, that you make it transparent so that they notice that you're looking through their tactic? I think you should be clear what emotions are productive to speak about. And what emotions, if you speak about them, will be more like an insult or... So I would never say I'm angry now because we, we can't deal with my anger, right? As long as you can stay on the factual level, it's better for negotiation. What is never good is to insult someone and to say, I have the feeling you, you are manipulating me here is an insult so it will not help us both my emotions are one thing but obviously the other side will also have emotions and they may or they may not be aware of them so how do i handle the emotions of my counterpart same same thing bring them to light of course it would always be better to do it in a more neutral language like it sounds as if you are disappointed not i think you are disappointed because it's not me here um, on stake in our negotiation. It's um, more better to say it in a neutral way and say it sounds as if you are disappointed or if you are um, unsecure and then the other can, can say something about it. I mean, this is something maybe many listeners have also experienced that in particular in, in more kind of personal negotiation situations. If you do that, and for example, you say to your partner, say, you know, who's getting very upset and you, you tell them, look, honey, you need to calm down. Or Sometimes this may have the opposite effect. At Absolutely. least I've made the experience, Absolutely. you know, that it gets worse, actually. They get more upset. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, that's not a recommendation, what you said. It's kind of ordering someone do something. You should calm down. In a negotiation, I should avoid to tell the other what he or she should do. What is always better to serve his or her autonomy. Autonomy is a social need, a very important social need we all have. Autonomy means you have the choice to do this or that, to decide. And to decide, that gives you also, um, to be able to decide, that means you can create this situation, you have influence on this situation. And that's much better than have someone ordering you around or telling you what you should do. You should always try to avoid this situation. So never push someone by saying he should do or she should do this or that. That's not a good way of negotiating. Talking about needs, you're writing in your book that often there is, you know, the, the apparent negotiation that's going on about a salary, about the purchase of a good or something like that, but that there's often also a second level of needs that the negotiators have and that they may not even be aware of. You mentioned one, this is autonomy. What are other common needs that people should pay attention to but 
are maybe not aware of. A lot of people know this um, Maslow, I think in English it's Maslow hierarchy of needs. It's a pyramid and it's, it talks about primary needs and social needs and social needs are secondary. But uh, the modern neuroscience has found out that social needs are no longer or they have never been secondary. If you hurt The social needs, it's processed in the same brain region than her, the physical hurting. That makes clear that it's really, really important for our brain, the social need. It's not just secondary. It's as important as primary need for our brain. These five needs, you can, label, you can name them because modern neuroscience has means to, to measure them uh, with the hormones that are in your in your body. The SCARF model relies on um, the book of David Rocks, Your Brain at Work. It's named SCARF because it puts the five, uh, the first letter of the five uh, social needs in one word. S for status, C for certainty, A for autonomy, R for relatedness, and F for fairness. And these five social needs are at every, absolutely every negotiation table. And in my courses, I always tell uh, the story about the biggest merchant acquisition in the U.S. It was the merger of uh, First Union Corporation with Core States Financial Corporation, a $16 billion deal. And that was endangered because of one of the, the negotiators uh, feared for his social needs. These social needs plays a crucial role, a crucial role in every negotiation. And we need to have a keen observation which social needs is here, need is here at the table with me and plays a role in this negotiation. So we often go into negotiations thinking that we're talking about salary and actually what we're trying to negotiate is a higher status or we want to be recognized more or we see our autonomy threatened in some way. Is that what you say? Yeah, for example... Or we just wanted to be treated fair because I have worked so many years here for this institution. I really need to be treated fair and get a pay rise because all my other colleagues have already pay rise or things like that. Yes. Is there a, a process or a tool that you can use to, first of all, find out what your own needs are, but then also, and you mentioned the importance of preparation to trying to find out what the other person's needs may be concretely in a situation. So that's a bit more difficult, right? Than salary, we talked about salary. Yes, you can ask other people, you know, you can maybe look it up on the internet, you know, what the salary range is for such a position in, in, that, in that city. But it's more difficult to understand what the particular needs of your counterpart may be in a situation. So what, what's the situation your boss is in or, or you know, you, how do you do that? There is a tool. Keen observation. That's the first and very important tool of every negotiator. You need to learn to observe very attentively what, what is happening in the negotiation room. On the body language level, on the verbal level, you really need to listen and observe. And that means you need to be prepared perfectly that you don't have to ask yourself about something, but your concentration can be completely 
on the other. That's the first tool. I have sharpened my observation. And that's why I teach uh, with, I like to teach with uh, film examples because we analyze them. The second thing is you need to ask a lot of questions. More asking than talking yourself. That's negotiation. For the game of giving and taking, you need munition. And this munition is based on information. So negotiation is also an information game. The more information you have about your counterpart, the more you can gain what we call in um, negotiation language uh, leverage. Leverage is what helps you to gain negotiation power. It's not your hierarchy. It's the knowledge of the other, what he really wants, what he doesn't want, and what is relevant to him or her. Let's talk a little bit about the cultural background. You mentioned that at the beginning of our conversation that you, when you lived in China, you experienced very different you know, cultural norms around negotiation. Many of our listeners will be in international situations because business is global, so it's just very natural to be negotiating with somebody from another cultural background or maybe even a situation where there are different people from more than two cultural backgrounds. What do you see as main differences, maybe, if you can say so, and how do you deal with that? I think behind cultural differences are often fundamentally different views of what communication should do for human interaction. So it's very basic. And I think, for example, we Westerners, we like to search for an abstract truth and for objective knowledge. We, we have no problem to engage in controversial discussions, for example. We like that sometimes. But Asians, as I have experienced, um, Asian, uh, Chinese uh, uh, in the People's Republic of China, Asians, on the contrary, they tend to balance opposites and to resolve these opposites by more by consensus. There is a wonderful thousand-year-old saying by Lao Tzu, this Chinese philosopher, who said, people have been cr going crazy for ages. Therefore, the sage brings together and does not separate. And this is exactly the opposite of confrontational discussions, bringing things together instead of pointing out where are the differences. So I would not expect an Asian negotiation partner to be as forthright as a Westerner. I need to listen more between the lines with my Asian negotiation partner And in general, negotiations take more time as the outcome is built more on personal understanding, personal relationship than on written contracts. Would that suggest that women are maybe an advantage in that situation? Because that leads us back to the relationship part and the relationship building. If you say that women are better in, by and large than men, would that place them at an advantage? Uh, no, I wouldn't say like this. I would say the one who is more open to what the other really says and more open to listen and not to judge so quickly, that one would be in advantage. There is another interesting difference that have a huge effect on negotiation and that comes from a study by Professor Amy Cuddy and her colleagues. And that study highlighted the different ways we interpret the behavior of others. For example... 
If I think, oh, this negotiator uh, behaves uh, very reticent because he's not interested in me as a customer, for example, huh? then I assume it's his individual decision. He's not interested in me. But maybe the reason uh, is that he is, uh, it, it's not common in his culture to deal with a female negotiator like me. And then it would be a, a situational circumstance would be the correct interpretation of his behavior. So according to that study, I found that very interesting. North Americans in particular, they tend to impose their own individual motivations on others. And which is not surprising because it's a very, the U.S. culture is a very individualistic culture as the Germans are too. So when we interpret events or human behavior from our own cultural standpoints, that can lead to gross misunderstandings during a negotiation. So it's always better to be very, very open what are, or let's say to understand first what is normal in that culture, what, which is in front of my eyes. What is normal there? What What uh, what they define, what kind of prevailing working structures do they have there? And if I don't understand that, I'm very tempted to, to automatically classify their behavior according to my perspective. Anja, we slowly need to come to an end, but at the beginning you mentioned that negotiation is a, a game that we should enjoy. It's a give and take. I'm pretty certain that the majority of our listeners will not see negotiation situations as something that they, by and large, enjoy. So what can you give our listeners as advice on how they can become better as negotiators so that they eventually might get to that point that you alluded to where they actually enjoy this little game of give and take? First, I would say negotiation is a craft that is learned by training. You really need to train it, to use it. And it's a combination of patience and also of merciless self-reflection. That is also really important to be clear. You can't be right in a negotiation. If you want to play the game, I am right and you are wrong, I would say go to court. I'm also a lay assessor at the district court in Frankfurt. But a negotiation is not about being right or wrong. A negotiation is to understand that you have just your own concept of reality and the reality of the other person may look completely different. So be very humble to explore with all the questions you can think about, to explore the world of the others and understand his or her concept of how he sees the world. Ask a lot of questions about how the other sees the thing, the issue we negotiate about. Will help you to get really win-win situations and not just the maximum out uh, for yourself. And the last thing I would say, remember that you always negotiate for something and not against someone. That's why I always recommend to see your negotiation partner as a partner. It's not your adversary. It's not your contrahend. It's your partner on your way to your goal. We've talked about 
relationship building and the importance of maintaining a relationship. Why is that so important? Couldn't you just say, well, you know, my purpose is to get as much as possible and uh, I don't care whether I screw the other person or not? I always say your reputation is your social capital. And it's not you who determines your reputation. It's the other one. It's your counterpart who, um, who determines how he sees you and your behavior. Okay? And if you are seen as an unethical, inconsistent or wrathless negotiator who is just caring for his advantages you will have sooner or later to deal with mistrust and isolation, which is a very bad position for a negotiator. Why? As I explained, um, people will no longer cooperate with you or share information with you. If they don't share information with you, you gain not, much, uh, you gain not enough information to have the leverage you need. Are there any secret tricks that you can share with our listeners? Any shortcuts to becoming a master negotiator? I'm afraid there are no shortcuts because it's lifelong training and that makes it so interesting. It makes it so interesting. You can lifelong learn on negotiation and if you have children, just observe your ch ch children. They are really master negotiators uh, in my eyes. And yeah, we've learned a lot. Uh, unfortunately, there are no shortcuts when it comes to negotiations, but it can be learned. So there are techniques that you can do to prepare. If you want to find out more, you can obviously buy Anya's book. And again, you will find the title and the link in the show notes. You can also, if you like, and uh, at least if you live somewhere around Frankfurt, you can go to one of Anya's seminars or book her as a coach as well. Thanks so much for being with us here today. You're welcome. Thank you. This was another episode of the Whole Grain Leadership Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or whatever your favorite podcasting platform may be. Of course, I would also be delighted if you would leave a review there or rate it. And you can also go to our website at www.wholegrainleadership.com to check out the show notes of this episode. That's it for today. Thanks for listening.